Welcome to the resource room. I'm Amanda, the blogger and TPTer behind the Primary Gal. As a special education teacher, you are always supporting others, students, parents, general education teachers. But who is supporting you? That's where this podcast comes in. It's my mission to give you the help and support that you need. I'll be sharing my tips, tricks, research-based strategies, and professional development. I'm here to help you grow and learn as a resource room teacher. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Hi, Megan. Thank you so much for joining the Resource Room Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Let's go ahead and dive in first with you just kind of sharing a little bit about yourself and what you do, how you could help resource room teachers. Sure. So I'm a pediatric neuropsychologist, which means that I completed a doctorate degree in clinical psychology and then went on to do a two-year postdoctoral fellowship specifically in pediatric neuropsychology. And that area of the field really focuses on brain behavior relationships. Um, And within that niche, I was especially interested in autism. And I've worked with kids with autism since high school in a number of different settings. Um, And I just kind of realized I wanted to be the person at the start of the process, giving families the diagnosis and information in a helpful, compassionate way and making sure they had the supports they needed because I saw and worked with a lot of families where that wasn't their experience. And so went through all that training and that's what I've been doing essentially for the last nine years or so. Um, And of course, when you specialize in autism, you see all different kinds of kids because there's a lot of overlapping traits and behaviors. So I see kids with all different kinds of developmental concerns, um, generally toddlers through um, college age. And you primarily do a lot of evaluations, correct? Like, like you had said, you know, kind of those early beginning, you know, beginning that process on to then later getting them the help and support they need, correct? Right. So we do an intake appointment where we interview parents and we collect information from teachers. I'm sure you and your listeners have filled out plenty of BASC and brief forms. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one sending those. Um, and then doing direct testing with the child. And then we do a feedback session with the parents. Um, and part of my new practice is also having a child feedback session. So the child works with us over the course of the evaluation to complete a book about what we're learning about their brain and then explain it to them at the end. Um, And then they take that book home with them. So trying to make it more of a well-rounded experience where the family and the child are really learning and understanding um, how their brain works and therefore what would be most helpful to support them. I think that's wonderful because as we know, the label of autism is put on a lot of kids in our country and it looks different in everybody. You know, there's no one size fits all when you're diagnosed or, you know, when you receive that um, disability category, especially on our end then at school. So what are some things that, um, you know, a lot of what I was seeing on your Instagram when I saw you is I'm like, she really dives deep into 
here's what autism looks like if you have a boy or a girl or ADHD as a boy or a girl. What kind of characteristics might we see in girls with autism versus boys with autism? Sure. So what the research has shown is that girls tend to have um, better what we call masking abilities. And so they may be um, kind of blending into social situations, but they're doing it by really observing what others are doing, maybe mimicking others' behaviors. Um, and so socializing becomes very effortful for them um, and therefore exhausting mm -hmm. rather than intuitive and um, kind of easy and enjoyable. And of course, not everyone socializing isn't always easy and enjoyable for everyone, but for them, especially <laughs> it may be that they are um, working really hard to kind of blend in. Um, girls also tend to be better at using nonverbal communication. So one of the diagnostic criteria for autism is deficits in nonverbal communication. So anything that's not what you're saying, but how you say it, your posture, your gestures, your facial expression, your eye contact, and how well you integrate those things. And um, a lot of girls tend to be better at um, using different forms of nonverbal communication, but they really struggle to read other people's nonverbal cues. Um, girls tend to have less atypical and repetitive play or body movements. So some of the classic things you think about with autism is lining up the toys over and over, things like that. Girls um, play might be repetitive, but not in such an unusual manner. Like I've had girls where they set up their living room to be like a school and they'll spend two hours setting up the school scene, but then they don't actually engage in imaginary play, um, something like that. So it's not so unusual, but there's a different quality to it. And it tends to be the same every time. Um, and their interests tend to be uh, more typical or common interests, just very intense, so kind of a different quality with that to the point where it's often problematic because you know, they can't go down that aisle at Target without stopping to see all of the whatever dolls because it might cause them a lot of distress or they're not leaving the house to go to school because they're stuck on that favorite activity or something like that. So having special interests is not problematic unless it starts to get in the way. Um, so I see a lot of girls who are just, you know, unicorns or LOL dolls or animals is a big one, nature. Whereas some of the more kind of classic examples would be like trains and um, clocks or vacuum cleaner parts or something a little bit more atypical. So, of course, boys can have any number of interests, too. But as general, what research shows is that girls' interests may be a bit more typical. So that was very long-winded. I could say that <laughs> shorter, probably. No, I think that's great. And one thing as you were talking, if you don't care if I put you on the spot with a question I didn't warn you about, and maybe this is too technical that you don't know this on the spot. I feel like I myself have diagnosed or, you know, done a, a school-based evaluation for more boys with autism than girls mm -hmm. with autism. Do you know kind of even a ballpark of what that ratio of boys to girls diagnosed with happens to be? Yes. Um, so there's kind of 
two parts to the answer. One is if you look at kids with intellectual disability and autism, it's a more even ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, once you are kind of in that below average, you know, 70 plus range, um, it's fairly consistent around four to one boys to girls are diagnosed. But when they've done research studies where they take large community samples and assess for autism, it's closer to three to one. So what that tells us is who's actually showing up for evaluation tends to be more boys, probably Mm -hmm. because their behaviors stand out as more atypical or unusual and compared to girls who also may blend in and use other strategies and kind of go under the radar. Well, that's kind of why I asked that question, because I'm like, you're describing lots of girls here who probably have a lot of the characteristics and could check a lot of the boxes when you're looking at it through the lens of a girl with autism versus just the what we think of, especially like with stereotyped behaviors and things like that. If you're mm-hmm. saying girls do that less, that's because we're looking at boys as being kind of the norm or, or what we think of. Mm -hmm. And like you said, having some of those extreme behaviors that maybe the girls are better at hiding or masking Mm -hmm. and things like that. Right. Where one child might be hand flapping as a kind of Mm -hmm. a classic example. I've had girls who a repetitive behavior was um, like pulling at their hair and it gets to the point where they're missing patches of hair on their head. Or they're picking at their cuticles repeatedly until they're really, you know, <laughs> bloody and they get uncomfortable. Um, or their repetitive behavior is, you know, they've they've read the Harry Potter series twelve times in a row, or <laughs> things like that. Um, Which sometimes we might dismiss, even as you, you know, earlier you were saying LOL dolls or you know things like that. Reading Harry mm-hmm. Potter. Those seem very typical, mm-hmm. just maybe to the extreme. You know, it's not a fascination with trains or clocks or sharks or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's to the extreme, you know, mm-hmm. it's a little more doable, I guess, or manageable. Right, right. And then when you ask parents a few more questions, you find out that it it is getting in the way. So they're, uh, you know can't stop playing the piano piece that they've worked on over and over again until they get it exactly right and they've done the entire thing till the end and therefore the family always has to kind of plan ahead and give lots of warnings when they're going to leave the house because it's going to be very upsetting to her if she can't complete it the way she was expecting to yeah one example yeah that's great and then for us as teachers knowing the, the stereotypical things that we might be looking for in autism might look different in a female student. Right. Yeah. Um, what are some other misconceptions that you feel like maybe um, we have, you know, because sometimes I feel like everybody's an expert at autism because they knew somebody who knew somebody who had autism or something, you know, what are some mm-hmm. misconceptions that you feel like, are out there in the world. And as I was telling you before we hit record, you know, so many special education teachers are kind of tossed in this role. And now you're responsible for 25 or 30 kids with an array of disabilities. And Mm -hmm. now you're expected to be able to service them all. 
What do you Mm. think maybe a new teacher or newer teacher might think they know, but don't actually know about autism? Right. So the common quip is if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. (laughs) Yes. But there are some good kind of go-to strategies that work well for them most of the time for most Mm -hmm. autistic individuals. Um, So some general rules of thumb that that you could always go to are weaving in their special interests into whatever you're teaching, making things visual. So either writing a list of what's going to happen or having a visual schedule of what's going to happen, reducing language. So just being really direct and concise saying exactly what you mean. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're trying to convey your message through tone or sarcasm or you're implying it, they're likely to miss the message. So just being very direct and clear, being aware of their sensory needs because if their nervous system is activated, their learning is going to suffer. It's hard to be kind of processing new information if if you're distracted or anxious or otherwise, and that's true for all humans. So it's just important right. to understand that for autistic children, there's tends to be more sources of distraction or distress. I think those are excellent strategies and a really good starting point because, you know, like I had also told you before we actually pressed record was, you know, you might have five students with autism who all need totally different things, or maybe a few have things in common, but they're still different. And so because of that, you do kind of need a handful of strategies of where to start so that then you can start adapting from there. Then where do you go with that? Right. Right. I think just always starting with joining them where they are and working from there. Mm-hmm. And part of that is, you know, if they're on a train of thoughts and that doesn't have anything to do with what you're trying to teach them, you're going to have to let them finish their train finish. of thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> they are on tires because you could try to redirect them, but it's unlikely to, it's going to be hard for them to shift their attention if they haven't of completed the thought or the thing that they feel very compelled to do. Yeah. They all need different things. Like those are good strategies and you can always come back to those. You can, if all else fails, meet them where they are. If they are on the floor and they are having a hard time, then maybe you hang out nearby on the floor until they're ready to move on. Or, you know, I know it's not so simple when you have lots of kids that you're attending to and trying to teach, but But even with that, then looking for patterns in things, you know, is it another student in the group that is maybe triggering some behavior or some anxiety or or whatever it might be Mm -hmm. and being proactive versus reactive to that? If we're going to be on the floor every day, what's causing it so that you can be mindful and kind of back it up from there and prevent those things, cut it off before it happens? Right. Um, Let's talk a little bit about sensory needs, if you're okay with that. Um, one of the things that you said is kind of being aware of their sensory needs. Mm-hmm. What are some things that maybe you see often that, you know, trigger or um, cause difficulty for some of those students? And then what do you think could be done for those, even as a preventative or a proactive strategy for them? That's a really good question. I won't be as good at answering this question as an <laughs> occupational therapist would. That's very it's true. That's more okay. their expertise, but um, I can 
I mean, lots of kids will come into the office and uh, they'll comment on the light, for example. Certain kinds of lighting might be bothersome. Or we use white noise in the office and they'll often notice that or ask about it. Um, I've had a couple of kids where they couldn't tolerate it. And so we had to turn it off for the whole office so that they could um, get through the appointment. Um, I once had a, a boy who I noticed he had taken his shoes off right when he got in the room. Um, but then he was moving around in his chair so much. And I thought, well, he's probably just a little antsy. You know, I see a lot of kids who are pretty active. Um, but I asked him about it and he said it's, he didn't want his feet touching the floor because he didn't like the feel of his socks on the carpeting. Ah, so mm-hmm. I said, well, what if we put something down below your feet? And then she, she said, sure. So I found a random folder, a piece of paper or something and put it down. And then he sat perfectly still with his feet on the floor. So, you know, it's like the sensory piece really, I try to you know, take that into account because it could be anything and for a lot of kids, you can just ask them and they'll tell you, but they might not think to tell you unless you ask. Ah, maybe that's really the key, you know, is, is yeah. when you're noticing something that does seem atypical, asking some of those questions so that you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. All right. So then to kind of switch gears a little bit, mm-hmm. what about ADHD and then the characteristics that we see in boys versus girls? Because again, that was something I noticed you were sharing over and over. And sometimes kind of like with autism, it's like, wow, well, when you put it that way, you're right. Duh. What kinds of things can you point out and give us those like <laughs> duh moments for boys and girls with ADHD? Yeah. Well, it's a good question because as a neuropsychologist raising a child who's now diagnosed with ADHD, I couldn't really see it for myself or what it was. So I can appreciate that. Oh, duh moment. <laughs> you know, I filled out the checklist with the pediatrician and she said, yes, ADHD combined type. I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't think that, I mean, I knew she was inattentive, but I didn't really see the hyperactive and impulsive piece. She wasn't bouncing off the walls or mm-hmm. running like, you know, a motor or whatever, but it was that she never stopped talking or making noises. I and I, you know, I know this about girls and ADHD, but when it's your own child, you don't see things objectively. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. She never stops making noise or talking and asks a million questions. Every thought comes out of her mouth. There's no, you know, not a great break system when it comes to verbalizing, but she's not especially, you know, bouncing off the walls or really hyperactive. Um, so that's a really one good example um, girls, oftentimes their behavior isn't disruptive. They keep it together better in the classroom. So they may be doing more like fidgeting, but they're not, um, you know, the ones causing a lot of disruption or blurting out in class maybe is where like, sometimes the boy's behavior tends to be more problematic and therefore they're referred for evaluation. Um, a lot of Girls, especially bright girls with ADHD, will make it till, you know, like fourth grade or so, where those executive functioning skills start to take a big step up and there's more independence expected of students and their planning and organization, the homework load. Um, and the research shows that fourth grade um, and then like start of middle school and start of high school tend to be 
common kind of catching points where the wheels start to fall off the wagon. (laughs) Their abilities to compensate in other ways don't, you know, start to not work as well, or they're starting to feel really frustrated and, you know, lose motivation for school. I can relate to that in so many ways. My daughter just finished fourth grade and I've literally asked since kindergarten, every teacher, I'm like, so do you think we should talk to the doctor? You know, like I, I know she is. And we, year after year, I asked every year and every year when I would talk, you know, like at our annual um, well child check, the doctor would be like, well, how are her grades? What does her teacher say? I'm like, her teacher says she's fine. She's Mm -hmm. a straight A student, you know, whatever. And so Mm -hmm. it wasn't until fourth grade that then we, I took her to therapy because she, I mean, behavior was, was escalating her stress level. Mm -hmm. And so we started out treating anxiety and I use air quotes as if listeners can see my air quotes, but We were Uh treating anxiety. And then after a little bit, the therapist said, now, Amanda, I want to talk to you about something and and it's going to be different. And so I'm like, oh my God, what is she going to say to me? She's like, I'm just wondering, have you ever thought maybe she has ADHD? And I'm like, uh, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I've known, but everybody always says she's fine. She's fine. Her grades are good. And, and Mm -hmm. she does just like when you said she maintains in the classroom so well, she's wonderful. And our evenings and our weekends are hard. And I think it's because her brain is so overwhelmed and that was causing some anxiety, but that wasn't the root of the anxiety, you know? Right. And so then once we talked to the doctor, she's been on medication, she's like a different child in a good way. Mm -hmm. You know, all the Mm -hmm. things that made her, her, are still there. Right. But it's like, it wasn't until, and then for me at, at sixth grade, our kids transitioned to middle school. So I'm like, Oh my God, she has one year of one teacher and then she's going to have to switch classes. You know, like Mm -hmm. this is going to be awful for her. How is she going to be able to survive? So I can relate 100%, but I think it's that boy girl stigma of what is ADHD. Well, yeah, we notice it when it's the kid causing problems, the kid impulsively, you know, doing some of these extreme behaviors, not Mm -hmm. the girl who keeps her shit together all day and then loses it at home, you know? Right. Right. And, you know, it's like, I always say it's not a problem until it's a problem. So Mm -hmm. you could have ADHD and be doing well with your grades and feeling well in your mental health until the demands of the situation outweigh your ability to manage them. And then when you repeatedly have the experience of going through your day with good intentions, wanting to please others and get it right. And over and over again, that's not how it turns out. Of course you get anxious. So I, then that story is a common one. Yeah. I've had a supervisor tell me if they're getting A's and B's and they don't have ADHD. It's like, well, I disagree as, as a mom, absolutely. I disagree. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, there's no diagnostic criteria that says, you know, you, you can't make a diagnosis if they're getting good grades. A diagnosis is made if there's functional impairment or significant distress. And so in the case of your daughter, it sounds like she was functioning okay, she's getting by and using her many other cognitive resources to manage, 
but then she was becoming highly distressed when things were yeah. more challenging than she could manage in the way that she wanted to. And too, you know, I think she's definitely like her mother in the, she's a perfectionist and she wants things to be just so, so, but when it's so hard to do mm-hmm. that. And I, I do think some of that is probably age. So I just thought it was so mm-hmm. funny when you said fourth grade and then the middle school, high school, I'm like, that that's where I'm at right now. It's, it's yeah. literally exactly. Um, so what kinds of things as teachers would you, or would you recommend for teachers for students with ADHD? What are some kind of tried and true things that you see as being effective things that would help them be able to maintain and function in a classroom. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, it's going to be oh, different for, sure. for every kid, of course. And when I am telling you what teachers could try to do, it feels a little bit like preaching to the choir because I'm sure that the teachers listening are far more well-versed in classroom strategies specifically than I am. But the way I write my reports is to, of bullet point accommodations that would be reasonable to consider. And then of course it's ultimately up to the school and educators and parents to decide what's appropriate to put in place. Um, But in general for kids with ADHD, um, approaching tasks tends to be pretty overwhelming because they can't really foresee how to break it down into steps. It's hard for them to think about how long is this going to take me? you know, they tend to get distracted easily. Their their mind is going to veer towards whatever is the most interesting or the most stimulating. Um, and so initially that may be the task at hand. And after a while, once that is not so exciting <laughs> anymore, then they're going to veer off task. So with those things in mind, um, you know, breaking the task down into steps for them so they can see A, B, C, and D. Like here's the route from where you are now to the end of the task setting a timeline. So making the concept of timer on the task more concrete. So using a visual timer or checking in with them to let them know how much time is left. Um, Letting them know what's going to happen once the task is complete. Sometimes that gives that extra boost of dopamine to make it more interesting to to stay um, attentive and get through it. And checking in with them a lot around kind of organization Checking, make sure they have what they need before they leave for the end of the day, before they go home. And then completing work when possible with in an area with less distractions, if it's something that they're okay with. I don't wouldn't want to put a student in a corner if that makes them uncomfortable. But um, I met a child, for example, we just talk about it quite openly that if, if it works better for her brain to be in a separate area to do her work, then that's just fine. That's what you need. Then that's what you do. And so there's no... I don't think she feels any shame around that, but another kid might not be comfortable. So always keeping in mind what, what's okay with the child too. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And even good reminders of like, go back to the basics, because that's what I feel sometimes, you know, we get wrapped up in fancy things, or we get wrapped up in all of the the cool, the new, the trend, you know, things like that. And really just going back to basics is helpful. Yeah, you can do a lot with just a stack of post-it right. notes. I do it all the time, you know, for an, in an evaluation. Kids with ADHD always ask, <laughs> almost always ask, how much time is left? And then they ask it a million yeah. times. Yeah, that usually goes in my observations because that's usually a sign. Like they really 
have a hard time if they don't understand how much time is left, what else is going to be required of me to get through this because it's all kind of abstract. Mm -hmm. And so I'll take out post-it notes and just I'll say, how many steps do you think you can do before we should take a break and let them decide and then just write the steps either with pictures or words, depending on the kid and just put it right there. So it's visual and then one add one for like what the break is afterwards and then just work it's nothing fancy you don't have to laminate or (laughs) print anything and the kid doesn't care you know if it's not fancy they just need to understand what's going to happen when how they're going to move through it and what's going to happen when it's over and then they're usually pretty happy to to do what you're asking them and two there's an end in sight there's a break in sight whatever it is oh only three more things only two more things only you know it it just is very doable And even think of how much time you're going to save for them asking, how much more? How much longer? Are we done yet? You know, those kinds of things. And that's doable in the classroom, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think about if you showed up at a new job and no one told you how long the day is going to be, what is going to be required of you at at work. When is lunch? (laughs) Right. And they're like, well this is just where you're going to be here today and you're going to be doing these kinds of things. Like I would be an anxious wreck. I'd want to know mm-hmm. <laughs> when is it going to be over? What do I need to do? How am I going to get the help I need when I need it? Um, and having a visual plan and having it broken down and making the time aspect of it more concrete, um, being ensured that I have what I need to do the job that day. All those kinds of things are just, like to your point, nothing doesn't need to be that fancy. Yeah, yeah. I love that idea. And honestly, those are the simple little things that sometimes we do on the fly. And then you're like, mm-hmm. well, that worked. I'm going to do that again, you know, and, and you just mm-hmm. learn sometimes by being in the moment, see how it goes and adapt as needed. And then those are the things that sometimes stick with us for years and years as tried and true things with a stack of post-it notes like that. That's perfect. Right. Do you have any other tricks that kind of get you through testing that might also help in a classroom setting, you know, that kind of buy you some time or rewards or things like that, that could maybe be adapted in a similar way? These are really uh, non kind of clinical things that I've just figured out over the years (laughs) that seem to help, but I never want to start until a child is calm and comfortable. The same is true for learning. You're not going to get their best effort or, you know, they're not going to learn to their fullest capacity if they're not calm and comfortable. So I try to have a lot of things on hand that are common interests for kids or books, different topics. And I always bring something out to the waiting room and sit with them and just connect with them on their thing first. And then sometimes kids will just stand up and just they're ready to go. Or I'll say, did you want to check with your parents if it's okay if we head back now or, you know, kind of wait for them instead of me just calling their name and waiting for them to come and going back to a testing room. Like, so that would be a very different experience. Yeah. And that feels them. very scary and official and I'm on the spot where you just became yeah. their friend in the waiting room. And there's so much you can learn from those moments too, you know, and as a teacher, maybe you end up doing the lesson through that route. Right. Is, I don't know how much flexibility you have, but I, I get a lot out of those kind of initial interactions with learning about the child and what's of interest to them and how they communicate that. 
And I guess another good go-to for me is just being silly with kids. Like it doesn't need to all be so serious. Like there's all these questions and it's a, it's an unusual process for a kid to go through to have to do these IQ batteries. And um, I try to mix it up and throw jokes in and I've got uh, like slingshot chickens that we can fling across (laughs) the room. And I usually at some point there's something you have to throw away and I'll, like throw it over my shoulder without looking. And then it's so funny when I miss every time or whatever, like the kids will joke about that. And I just try to give them something to laugh about as we go. Um, and I suppose that's something that could be incorporated. I think so, <laughs> into because oftentimes, you know, for me, our, our area here that I work in or my school specifically, we have a very, um, low socioeconomic status area, you know, so we have kids moving in and out all the time based on you got kicked Mm -hmm. out of this apartment. Now you're here. Now you're there. You know, a lot of government housing that they're, they're moving through. So I have kids that don't know me. And now suddenly I'm asking you, you know, I've got to write an IEP for you. So I'm doing a quick assessment Mm -hmm. or something. I think those are very valuable things to then be able to, Hey, if I'm going to have to meet this kid, what can I do to lighten the mood? What can I do to make this assessment mm-hmm. quick and easy, but not intimidating? Or, you know, oftentimes yeah. if, if it's a student who's going through an evaluation, I'm a special ed teacher. I don't always have them there. I don't know them. But again, I've got to write an IEP and complete that evaluation. So I want to build a connection with them. I think that's that's good. Yeah. And then you're really treating them as a fellow human moving through this process, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's easy to get kind of caught up in the red tape and we have to, I mean, teachers have so much they have to manage with checking all the right boxes and doing all the right forms and procedures that, um, but nobody goes into teaching because they love procedures and <laughs> forms. Right? Like You do it because of the connection piece yeah. and um, working with kids and connecting them with them in a way that's enriching for both of you. So if, if you can weave that into the process, then it's better for everybody. And, you know, sometimes I feel for myself, it's like, okay, I've got to assess this one and do this and do this and do this. So you make it so fast. But if the plan Mm -hmm. was first, we're going to read a little book or we're going to look at these stickers or we're going to toss chickens across the room, you know, like those would all be things that they would remember, lighten the mood. And like you said, allow them to really function at their best. Yeah. And YouTube is a, I mean, I know YouTube, there's a love hate relationship (laughs) there for everybody, but especially for older kids too. I'll just ask them, you know, like which sports stars they're into, or, you know, usually the parents have given me some idea of what they're interested in. So for a few subtests into an IQ battery and I can see their eyes glazing over, I'll say, like, you know, who is that person you like? Like, show me a video. Like, what's something cool we could, you know, and then they kind of brighten back mm-hmm. up and re-engage. Yeah, which is a great um, break, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, you've mentioned an IQ battery a couple of times. I have an off-topic question. Again, I feel like I'm full of things that I didn't warn you were coming. Um, this okay. is, this is just a me question. Okay. So we often see things like, you know, working memory done in an IQ test or processing speed, things like that. 
where could resource room teachers find activities that would work on some of those skills? Or maybe this is the better question. Are those things that you can improve over time? For example, let's say you were to give me an IQ test and my working memory was a 59. Can I improve that? Yes. This is a really complicated question. <laughs> I, I'm but really good at this. Yeah. yeah, right. So there's... um without going too into the weeds, there's parts of the IQ battery that are intended to measure what we call fluid versus crystallized intelligence. Um, one is more thought to be kind of inborn, kind of your learning rates and how quickly you can conceptualize and generalize new information. And the other piece is more um, kind of based on what you've been exposed to and you know what you've learned along the way. Um, so I guess the answer is both, right? Like there are some areas obviously that you can improve like vocabulary. One great way to improve vocabulary is to read mm -hmm. more. Um, and vocabulary is one of the subtests in the most common um, IQ battery. Um, was there another piece to your well, question? Well, I was I more, I... I said, the ones I mentioned were like working memory or processing speeds, oh, sure. you know, things like that. Are there activities that you could do on, you know, like, let's say in my resource room, if they walked in and independently did this or for two or three minutes did that with me, that could help improve some of that. Sure. Um, well, processing speed is a tricky one because when you see that index score, um, processing speed is sensitive to so many things, meaning your score can be lower for a number of reasons. So one, it's a fine, they're both fine motor yeah. tasks. One of them has a lot more fine motor involvement. And so if kids have fine motor issues, that's going to be a lower score. Um, it tends to be sensitive to attention. It tends to be sensitive to mood. <laughs> if you're anxious and you're trying to make sure you're getting it exactly right and you're giving up speed for accuracy, mm -hmm. your processing speed is going to be lower. So I often see in Facebook parent groups, people post their child's IQ scores and say, what does this mean? And it makes my skin because <laughs> <laughs> unless you're a, a trained clinician who's actually worked with that child, yeah. the score doesn't necessarily tell me much. What, what I learned from the scores is how how they got there and um, how they achieved kind of that level of um, like, if you got a really high score, how did they do that? Or if it was lower, was it because they were frustrated or tired or the task was really that challenging for them? Um, so to improve processing speed scores, it may depend on a number of factors. That was really long. Well, I think that's but. okay, though, because honestly, you know, I, I don't dislike assessments or some of those other things, but sometimes it's the informal things that really guide right. it. You know, that's the, the anecdotal notes that you make as you're taking that test that are actually the eye-opening piece to what you're doing, you know? There's been a lot of programs that have come out saying that they will help with working memory, like some different brain training programs. And what the research generally finds is that those programs make you do better and perform better when you're doing those programs, but it doesn't necessarily generalize across your life. And so usually what's more effective is to teach kids good strategies to use. 
Um, so you're just adding more tools to their toolbox. So for working memory, really um, want to just ask for one step at a time or ask someone to write it down for you or, um, you know, set yourself more reminders or keep a list because working memory is really, I like to think of it as juggling. It's like how many balls can right. you keep going in the air at one time? And um, the average adult can do about five to seven at one time. But if you have ADHD, it may just be one or two. Um, and so I think of it as um, finding ways to set the balls down so you're not having to juggle them. Mm, so instead of holding that, the, the piece of information in your head, you're making it physical and putting it in front of you. Um, so I just did a post recently with the popsicle sticks. Mm -hmm all the steps to the morning routine. So you're like taking all those balls those pieces of information that you're juggling in your head and you're making them physical and putting them in front of you. So you don't actually have to do the work of juggling them. And it's right there. Um, so just learning how to advocate for what you need and using some tools like that is usually what's most helpful. I think that's good because I have been kind of looking for books, especially working memory, because working memory and decoding go so hand in hand. Um, you know, at least mm -hmm. I teach kindergarten through third resource. So, you mm -hmm. know, we're working on a lot of decoding. And so it's like, well, maybe if I could just work on working memory then maybe that, you know, if I'm working on working memory and working on decoding simultaneously, maybe we'll show a little more growth. So I like that you're saying, I mean, obviously if I could fix it, I would, but that there's more mm -hmm. to it than just do a few activities to help you get better at working memory. We're just going to get good at those activities. Right. And there is, um, you know, there's a lot of it would be nice if there was a magic bullet for everything, yeah. right? But usually if you want your brain to be better at something, you need to keep doing that thing that you want to be better at. And it's as simple as that. So using working memory for decoding, if that's an area of weakness for a child, that's just what they need more practice yeah. with. And the more they practice it, the more they will strengthen that muscle and build those connections in their brains. So there's no kind of fancy other way to get there indirectly. It's probably most effective to just keep working on that specific skill set. Well, that's reassuring. That's good. Because also, yeah. too, I was even thinking, you know, when you were saying give them strategies, that's what we've been doing. Okay, so look at the end mm -hmm. of the word. So stretch OG, OG, and then add your beginning or look at your beginning blend mm -hmm. and say, okay, we have bull, okay, BL, you know what, that kind of thing, then tack on the end. So you're not trying to remember four sounds. You're just remembering mm -hmm. two sounds and adding one or adding two, you know, giving them less to mm -hmm. do. So that's reassuring that that is an effective strategy because I could spend all day working on working memory, but that may not help bridge that gap. It might not translate. Yeah. It might, yeah. Yeah, it might not translate over. Yeah. Or it might, yeah. but it might not. And then all that time is for nothing, you know? Yeah. And if you're just doing working memory drills, that'd probably not be super fun for anybody either. Okay. Well, Megan, thank you so much for taking the time to kind of educate us on all things autism and ADHD and all the random things that I sprung on you as well. So I appreciate <laughs> your time. Before we go though, could you please tell listeners where they can find you online and then what will they find when they get there? Sure. So my website is developmental-discoveries.com and that provides information about my new practice that's opening next month. 
Yay. Um, and then you can follow my Instagram, which is at developmental discoveries or on Facebook at, I think on Facebook, it's at developmental dash discoveries. But if you search for that name, you'll find it or if search by my name, Megan Aachen-Hellman. I have been working on some infographics and I put that project down about a year ago, but I do have um, some one page infographics that I have um, developed for ADHD, autism, and a couple other um, common developmental concerns that I assess for. And they're meant to be one page visual, like stick it on the fridge, like one size fits most for these different diagnoses and the strengths and the challenges that come with them and how people in that child's life can support them. So keep an eye out for that. Yeah. Proactively plug that. I'll probably link that on obviously my um, social media and and in the website once that's ready to go. Um, And otherwise I do have talks that I do for um, other professionals on autism, girls with autism. And if there's any other topic you'd be interested in me discussing, that's in my wheelhouse. I can always put together a talk and get it approved for CEUs and things like that for for teachers or otherwise. Where are those talks hosted? What is that on? Um, I've done a couple just through video platforms for large like, therapy practices so that people at different sites can all attend. Um, but I'm happy to do it in person too. Um, is that something that like later you could give me a link for and I could put in the show notes so that, you know, Oh, yeah. If not, if it's hosted through something else, then that's okay. Mm-hmm. But if it is something that's linkable, I'll I'll definitely link it for you. Okay. I don't have it in that form at this point, but it's something I should look into. Yeah, yeah, because I really do think that special education teachers really need some of that information. And even mm-hmm. I know at one point you were like, "Oh, this is probably so simple." No, that's what we need. You know, we really do yeah. need just here are five things to try. Not saying all five are going to work, but something mm-hmm. will, you know, something will stick or that gets our brains turning. And then how can we turn that teacher creativity on to make it, you know, individualized for the student or, you know, better suited. So I think, yeah, sure. any of those talks that you have or whatever would be wonderful. Yep. The services um, tab on our website um, I list kind of some information about my most recent talk that I put okay. together. And I would love to hear feedback from teachers too about, you know, as a clinician, my report writing, obviously not my report specifically, but I do feel oftentimes like we're working on different, like we're working for the same goal, but on two different sides of this big wall, like we kind of are in our own silos right. and, um, if teachers have feedback for clinicians on how to better communicate what we've learned and recommendations for the school setting, that would be really valuable and helpful for me. And then maybe I could do um, some posts on that. Yeah. Then even too, you know, long-term or I I don't know what your in game or your long-term plans are, but even as a teacher, when I first started and I'm given a psych report, I don't know what any of those numbers mean or what any of those tests look like or some of those things. Mm -hmm. So I could see what those scores mean, but that doesn't tell me anything about their academics Mm -hmm. or what, you know, and even like you were saying, parents might post that in a group and you're like cringing because, oh my gosh, what does that mean? What might a student, you know, Mm -hmm. what are some common things you see students do? Because then for me as a teacher, I'd be like, oh yeah, that's definitely so 
so-and-so and yep, 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 that checks the boxes. Mm-hmm. And then that might help make th- have things make sense for, oh, that's why they do that. Or that's why that's difficult for them. Ooh, there's a strength because of that, you know, but oftentimes mm-hmm. we, as like for me, I've never given those tests, so I don't even know what they include or what they ask. Our school psychologist does a wonderful job of explaining that to parents. So now 10 years in, I'm like, oh, well, she asked them to do this, this, that, the kids, you know, now I know. Mm -hmm. But initially early on as a special ed teacher, I had no clue. Yeah, it's a lot of data and it's it's not just the test scores. You're combining it with the information you learn from parents Mm -hmm. and teachers and your own observations and trying to tie that all together in a meaningful way and communicate it in a couple pages. Um, but as always a work in progress, so I would love more feedback. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Definitely. All right. Well, I will let you go. And I am so thankful that you took the time to talk with me today. And I think resource room teachers are going to get a lot from you and, um, maybe even be sending you some DMS on Instagram or some emails with, um, you know, some things that they have questions about. Sure. And I, I feel like I have as much to learn from them. <laughs> so I'm really, again, really open to feedback and ideas. And that's why we, because um, I don't live in that world. That's why, you know, our two, like you said, we are kind of in two different worlds, but, but we all have the same goals. We're all wanting the same things. We just want our kids to be successful, school to be as enjoyable and as effective and as meaningful as possible. And our knowledge works together, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much yeah, for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, and you have a great night. All right, thank you. You too. Well, my friend, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to the Resource Room Podcast. I truly, truly love to help and support other special ed teachers. Because of that, I run a Facebook group just for us. Search the Resource Room and request to join. You can also check out my website, theprimarygal.com, for blog posts, pictures, and more information. Until next time, have a great week.